0: Well, good morning again everyone and uh, thank you for having me this morning and my family. It's a privilege to open up God's Word together with you this morning here at your anniversary uh, celebration service and I thought it'd be a great way to celebrate if we looked at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus together. Uh, But let me start by uh, telling you a bit of a story from my past. Years ago, um, I bought a car, which you'd think would be a pretty straightforward process Uh, But it actually turned out to be a little bit complicated. So I signed the papers and was told it would be ready in about a week. But a few days later, the dealer calls, and he was very hesitant with me. He says, ''Mr. Wu, your car's come, but I've just seen the number plate. It's WIJ444. Would you like us to get you a different one?'' Now, if you're not familiar with Chinese culture, uh, Chinese culture is pretty superstitious, especially about numbers. So like us, uh, you know, 13 is the unlucky number. We'll ramp that up a couple of thousand times. That's four in Chinese culture. See, in Chinese, the word four sounds almost exactly the same as the word death. Whereas eight, on the other hand, sounds like prosperity, fortune, you know, all the good stuff. And so, you know, you pass a car and the number plate says 888, you look in the size you go past, it's a pretty safe bet It's going to be a Chinese driver, but you would never see a Chinese person in a car with the number plate 444, except me. (laughs) Um, I told the dealer, no, give me that one, that's the one I want. I had this vision of rolling past my Chinese rallies, you know, um, hanging out the window, doof-doof music thudding in the (laughs) deathmobile. Now, it's, it's dumb, isn't it? Uh, all superstition is dumb. To, to think that not putting the wrong number on your car can ward off death, it's quite absurd, isn't it? And yet at the same time, it's understandable because it's not just Chinese people who are afraid of death. I think if we're honest, we all are, no matter what culture we come from. Um, do you have one of those near-miss moments where you think, oh, man, I could have been gone just like that? I certainly do. It just rattles around in your head sometimes, and if you stop and dwell on it, it's actually quite terrifying. And rightly so, because as the Bible tells us, death is the consequence and ultimate symptom of sin. That is, humanity has rejected God who gives all life and joy, and so we and our whole world are now beset by death and fear. Uh, Let me read two verses that make this very clear. The first one is from our Old Testament Bible reading in Isaiah twenty five. But in verse seven of Isaiah twenty five, death is called uh, the shroud that covers all people. I think there's a uh, verse that should be coming up. Yes. Death is the shroud that covers all people, uh, the sheet that covers all nations. Or in Hebrews chapter 2.15, humans are called those who all their lives were enslaved to their fear of death. But God doesn't say this and bring us face to face with our own mortality to make us feel hopeless and afraid, just the opposite. He wants us to see just how wonderfully he's answered death for us in Jesus' resurrection. So let's turn to Luke chapter 24. If you have a Bible, it would be great to have it open because we'll be referring to uh, that passage. And I just want to make two points about what Jesus' resurrection shows from this passage. First, that Jesus has conquered death. That's verses 1 to 8. And second, that we therefore have hope beyond death. And that's verses 9 to 35. So let's turn there now. Uh, So the first, the resurrection shows us Jesus has defeated death. So the passage starts, verse 1, at dawn, the Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion on the Friday. And so these women, his followers, go to his tomb with spices they've prepared in chapter 3, verse 26. And the point of them was actually to mask the odor of the body as it started to decompose. So back then, um, tombs were caves carved out of the rocky hillside, which you'd cover with a stone. So as you can imagine, above ground, hot Middle Eastern sun, not sealed that well. Uh, Things could get pretty smelly pretty quick. And so the spices were like a bit of a first century, I don't know, air wick or Glen 20, something like that. But more, of course, you know, they were a sign of love and respect. And also, for the living, a final act of mourning and closure. Uh, A little bit like we might drop a rose on the casket. So in other words, these spices and what the women did, it wasn't just a sign of care. It was also a sign to them that it's over. Like the rest of us, death has apparently claimed Jesus as its own. But there's a surprise waiting for them. Verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And their reaction to this discovery was like anyone's would have been. Verse 4 says, while they were wondering about this, but actually, I think the language in the original is stronger. It's probably better put, they were at a complete loss, which you would be if something like that happened to you. Um, I had occasion to visit my grandparents' graves a little while ago. And I think, you know, if their coffins had been dug up and their bodies missing, I would have had a stronger reaction than, hmm, I wonder what happened here. I would have been like a stunned mullet. That's their reaction. Now, things get even more bewildering in verse 4 when these angels show up. But they show up to say the women are looking for Jesus in the wrong place. Verse 5. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. You see, what these women did while it was done in love was actually totally inappropriate. And why? Because they still thought the wrong Lord was in control. Jesus isn't in the grave where death rules, he's risen they'd come with spices to try and just mask death's stench as best they could, only to find death itself completely blown away. There is a new master who rules. And actually Luke hints at that in verse 3 when he says they didn't find the body of not just Jesus, but the Lord Jesus. And so it's Jesus' word and not death's, That has the final say now. Verse 6, remember what he said while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And so these verses make the point very clearly that Jesus has conquered death and so he alone is Lord of all. And brothers and sisters, never forget this. Christianity is not just a clever philosophy. It's not good morals to live by. You're not a Christian because you're a good person or you're born into the church. You're a Christian because, as Danny put it so perfectly, because you simply put your trust in Jesus. But you believe something Utterly bewildering has happened that it is so good it should leave you at a loss. Jesus was dead and he is alive forever. Not a metaphor, not wishful thinking, not a fantasy that's nice you believe in it, he's risen in your heart, whatever, but we all know it's really make-believe. No, concrete, concrete. Physical, historical fact. Jesus is alive now and he rules over everything forever with absolute authority. Is that not utterly worthy of celebrating today and every day? And what a tremendous challenge that places on us, brothers and sisters. To ensure the people, the place, all the activities that go by the name of Richmond Anglican give everyone in and around you a real experience of the blessing of living under the risen Lord Jesus. So I want to challenge you from this first part. What part of your church's life are you or could you be involved in that would help foster that into the future? And I'm sure if you need some help getting involved, uh, that Rick or the staff would love to hear from you. But that's the first point that this passage makes, that the resurrection shows that our Lord Jesus has defeated death and rules everything. Well, the second thing this passage tells us is that Jesus' resurrection is not just for him. No, he won his victory over death for us so that we have true hope of overcoming death like him. And so, really, what happens in these uh, verses 9 to 35 is we have a journey that goes from hopelessness to hope. Hopelessness in verses 9 to 24, and hope in verses 9, uh, 25 to 35. So, let's focus on 9 to 24 first. This really records a journey of hopelessness of two more of Jesus' disciples after his death. Um, It's quite a strange episode, so particularly verse 16, we're told Jesus actually stops them from recognizing him at first supernaturally. Now, why does he do this? Well, I think it's because he actually wants to draw all their pain out into the open before he takes it away. I don't know, a little bit like a good massage or something, you know, it's got to hurt before it gets better. But hope is what it's all about, and hope is really so important for us as humans, isn't it? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I think there's a quote coming up, once said uh, if you lose hope, you lose that vitality that keeps life moving. You lose that courage to be, that quality that helps you go on in spite of it all. So hope is incredibly important for life as humans. But you will know as well as I, it's also very fragile and often fails painfully. So Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, once said, hope is the worst of all evils, for it prolongs the torments of man. And this is kind of true, isn't it? I remember once being on a mission and uh, meeting a lady in a nursing home, and as I chatted with her, I asked her how long she'd lived there, and she began to cry. And she said uh, when her husband died, she'd wanted to stay in their home but her son told her, Don't worry, Mum, we'll just move you into the nursing home temporarily. We'll sell the house, extend our place, and you can live with us. And so she moved. Uh, he sold the house and then took the money and disappeared and just left her there. And she said, My son has made my life a cruel joke. So heartbreaking. But in many ways, it's a universal experience, isn't it? Uh, Have you ever had a cherished hope painfully crushed? It's awful, isn't it? Well, to the disciples, Jesus' death seemed like God's cruel joke on them. So verse 17, he asks what they're talking about, and they just stand there, dejected. And then say in verse 20, we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. you hear that hopelessness? But also notice what their hope was about, because it's key to what happens next. The redemption of Israel was the great hope that sustained God's people throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And that is, they had been slaves in Egypt in ancient times, and God powerfully rescued them through Moses. Now they'd been conquered by the Romans, and God had promised He'd again send a Savior. And that seemed to be Jesus. So He'd drawn them all together. He'd preached and fired up their hopes and said, Leave your families, leave your jobs, come and follow me. God's kingdom will come when I get to Jerusalem. When they got there, it's nothing but failure. No revolution. No victory over the Romans. In fact, Jesus just gave himself up to be arrested, tortured, and executed. Absolutely crushing letdown. And so with his death, you see his disciples also give up. But look at Jesus' response in verse 25 as he starts to bring true hope out of their hopelessness. He says, how foolish you are And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? You see, they shouldn't have given up hope because the same Bible that spoke of his victory also said he first had to die. And it actually makes perfect sense when you remember that redemption literally means paying a price to buy something out of someone's possession. The disciples expected a military liberation from the most oppressive human power imaginable at the time. But Jesus says he came for a far greater rescue than even that. And it's what we saw at the beginning of the sermon. Our ultimate problem Is sin, our rejection of God and its consequence, death. And so Jesus' crucifixion wasn't a tragic accident that ended the hope of redemption, it was the necessary price for the redemption that we all ultimately need. That is, we are under death's rule, he is not. And so what he must do is come and die in our place to pay the penalty to buy us out of death so that we might be free of its power. And so Jesus' death is hope for us because it fundamentally changes the very way life and death work in this world. So, have a look again at those verses we saw earlier, but this time we're going to look at them in their full context, because in that context, they're not only about death, they're actually about the fact that God always saw our ultimate need, and his work in the world has always been directed towards us overcoming death. So, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 7 says, On this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Hebrews 2 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, that's what Jesus' death and resurrection does. It breaks death's hold on us so that no matter what grief or loss we experience in this world, we can know for certain it will not hold ultimate sway over us. And brothers and sisters, isn't this so timely a word given how challenging life has been for us? Whether it's COVID and its ongoing impact, the havoc and terror of the rains and the flooding, or for us as Christians in general, open hostility now in our own society. And that's just the broad things. What about those other things that are closer and deeper and more individual for you, some of which we've already heard about? That you may see no possible earthly way out of. And God promises that those who entrust their lives to Jesus will be raised to conquer them all and with them death and sin as surely as Jesus himself did. And like him, for us, it's not a metaphor. Not wishful thinking, it is real, concrete, physical life through resurrection, like Jesus, with Jesus, forever. And Luke chapter 24 says, that is the hope that God gives his people. And Jesus went to the grave and back to win it for us so so that we might have it, surely. So let me uh, close by asking you then, um, how would you summarise, if someone were to ask you, what is your hope in this world? Uh, I mentioned uh, before that I went to visit my grandparents in the cemetery, and uh, it was a very sobering experience, You know, looking over thousands of gravestones as far as the eye could see. Um, and uh, Rick told me, you have your own graveyard um, just across the road, and I noticed some beautiful memorial stones here. It's actually worth doing some time to stop and uh, have a look at what people say about their heads, on their headstones. A little bit morbid, but it does bring reality home and it clarifies and sharpens what you think you hope in. Uh, and as I was going through the uh, graveyard, uh, it just hit me that in 50 years, 100 years time, uh, all of us and most of the people we know will have physically succumbed to death and we will have our own gravestone. So please don't hear me being facetious, but I want to finish with a challenge to ask if you've ever considered what you would like written on yours. Uh, Let me read out a couple I found from the cemetery that I visited. Here's the first one. In loving memory, a husband, father and grandfather who cared for us, a humble hometown caretaker, a friend to those in need, a quiet achiever and builder of a successful enterprise, Born 6th of March 1918, died 12th of November 1993. Now, in many ways, I find this a a deeply admirable headstone. It speaks to the person's character and his family's love. But I also find it deeply sad that, even for all that, the last word still belongs to death. Born 6th of March 1918, died 12th of November 1993. What about this one? Lonely is the home without you, life to us is not the same. All the world would be like heaven if we could have you back again. And when I saw this gravestone, I got churned up because this is exactly the hope Jesus comes to give us. That one day, that deep longing we have to see death broken and those we love alive again once more will be reality. Now contrast those two with this headstone of just two simple lines. Though he be dead, yet shall he live. And then Jesus' words from John's Gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. And so I want to ask you, as I uh, try to ask myself, which of those headstones will express my life in time to come? Will you be that quiet achiever who worked hard, lived, and then died? Will you be someone for whom friends and family say, we are lonely without you and the world would be heaven if only we could have you back again? Or will yours be that sober but joyful testimony of hope in the risen Lord Jesus? Verse 5, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus in whose name we meet and celebrate today is no cruel joke on us. He is the one true hope for life in this world and he is ours let's pray dear father we thank you for the resurrection of the lord jesus christ thank you that he died physically and was raised physically never to die again help us to celebrate him every day to put our trust in nothing but him and to tell all those we can that they too can have life and hope by putting their trust in him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.